This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is the Paranoid Strain. I'm Fearful Jesuit. You know how... Wait, how am I going to put this? Okay, everybody's had this experience at one point or another. You get on your fixie bicycle, helmet up, and head out to the locally sourced vegan kombucha place that's like two neighborhoods over because your area can't get it together to join the probiotic revolution, even though you're like, hey, everybody, it's like 2022, you know? But you actually secretly love the ritual of going all the way to Booch Boys, even though it's like a 15-minute ride away, because you know you're going to get to sample all the new flavors, and you'll get to chat with Francois behind the counter, who just knows like so much about fungus-based fermented beverages that you can just get hypnotized listening to him talk about developing and nurturing a scoby. And you know on some level it's all intertwined with this unspoken competition you're having with your wife to be the one in the relationship who has the most knowledge about kombucha. Or at least you're having this competition. You're not positive your wife even knows about it, but... More than that, you've been spending an increasing amount of your free time reading up on the subject just so that this guy with his very intimidating man bun and piercing blue eyes will know you're not some noob when it comes to creating better, more flavorful, more nutritionally dense kombuchas. Like, you're eager to learn, but you're not like the other patrons. This isn't your first rodeo, right? So you're riding over... Jesuit, what in the holy shit are you doing? Dana, hush. I'm changing up the intro, going for a whole This American Life thing. What's this shit about kombucha and probiotics and bicycles and man buns? You going bougie on me? Duh. This American Life. Bougie. Okay, point taken. But this is a new topic, right? So what gives? Where's the high concept sketch? We're supposed to be listening to a little audio drama where you steal a spaceship from Musk or Bezos and get into high orbit, beam yourself aboard an alien ship, and then inform the conveniently English-speaking explorer in your patented condescending way that they probably don't exist in the solar system, and then you springboard off that to introduce the next year of UFO-related shows. Oh shit, right, you were on vacation when the memo went out. What memo? What company, for that matter? And wait... We get vacation? See, this is what happens when you outsource HR, I swear to God. Anyway, what it is, Dana, is that we were going to do UFOs. We were all geared up to play the audio we recorded way back in 2017 with the Roswell tour guide walking us through those events, eager to recount the full day we spent in the little A. Lee Inn restaurant and bar on the outskirts of Groom Lake, a.k.a. Area 51, cracking the books to research everything from ancient aliens to Barney and Betty Hill. So what happened? Well... In a sense, January 6th, 2021 happened. 
I know we already covered this in some depth. Some depth, here meaning via two-and-a-half-hour rock opera. Yes, the 9116 album, available in two parts in the RSS feed. Thanks for the reminder, Dana. But while that magnum opus covered a lot of ground, it also got us thinking about how absolutely different our world feels today than it did when we started this show five years ago. Sure, the Capitol riots were a major inflection point, but the broader story seemed to be how QAnon, in spite of Trump's election loss, the total failure of the storm of arrests, prosecutions, and executions of evildoers to ever materialize, and the silence of the original QAnon poster amid domestic and international turmoil, in spite of all this, QAnon continues to crop up all over the place. But the worst part, and this is really hard for a born glass-half-full guy like your host to acknowledge, the fever doesn't really seem to be breaking. Nothing's convincing true believers that their beliefs are misplaced. And with an election looming later this year in which Q-friendly candidates seem thick on the ground, things could actually get worse before they get better. So, no UFOs. Again, we were gonna do UFOs. In any normal world, we would be doing UFOs right now. We love the idea of doing UFOs. There's all this interesting shit going on with them. I mean, the goddamn government basically confirmed that UFOs... Not aliens. Just UFOs. ...are an actual thing. But we're not in a normal world. Some have called this the worst timeline, which, even given recent events, seems harsh. The worst timeline is actually one where those weird-looking, unkillable, microscopic tardigrades suddenly, inexplicably, grow to dinosaur size. Plus, Trump gets his reality TV show back. But we realize that while we've tackled topics like false flags, COVID denial, and historical antecedents like the John Birch Society, we haven't really presented a coherent explanation of how exactly those streams of thought have built upon each other to create the Q lusterfuck. He's entirely too proud of that one. That we face today. So here we launch our next big series, which we've titled QAnon, How We Got Here. But you've done QAnon. Twice! three times, actually. And we don't plan to retread old ground, but we think it would be a great use of our and our listeners' time to try to contextualize the insanity that we see every day by exploring the origins of each weird idea that has fed its tributary into the raging whitewater shit rapids of QAnon, and seeing how the modern conspiracist mindset warps, alters, and unifies these streams of thought into a semi-coherent, though completely imaginary, worldview. So, no fun little skit? No, definitely skits. It's just instead of doing one big one at the beginning, we're going to try to drop little dramatizations of events, personalities, and concepts in as the need arises. Okay. I fear change, but if you say so... Trust me, it's going to be great. In fact, we're going to do our first little skit shortly. You're going to love it. TBD, but what about the weird noises in the theme song? Don't you worry, they're coming. But before we get to that, we need to tell you about two other factors that helped us crystallize what this series is all about. The first is a real-life phone call from a real-life friend. That call came from one Brendan Greeley, boon companion since 1993 and a journalist of long standing. Rather than read you his resume, I'll let him introduce himself. My name is Brendan Greeley. For the last 20 years, I've worked as a staff writer for The Economist and uh, Bloomberg Business Week and The Financial Times. About half of those years, I've covered economics, in particular, monetary economics, covering the Federal Reserve, basically. 
I happen to know Brendan. I should note here that his pseudonym is Breen because of our longstanding rule that everyone gets a pseudonym and also in relation to an even more longstanding and Brendan insulting in-joke among our friend group. Carry on. I know Breen, but his job has nothing to do with conspiracy theories. So why is he here? The reason he called me has to do with a news story that broke concerning a topic about which he knows a great deal. And what is this exciting topic? It's the Federal Reserve. Wait, I hear all of you out there right now positioning your fingers over the skip button, and I know you want to get to the QAnon insanity, but please bear with us. There's a method to our madness, and it turns out that Breen's experience with the Federal Reserve gave us a whole different angle on this series. Anyway, back to the man himself and why he's uniquely qualified to take us on this journey. There's a sort of specific breed of journalist, and once you specialize in this thing, it's very difficult to leave. You cover the Federal Reserve, and you sort of understand all the things that the Federal Reserve says, and you understand the manner in which it says them, and the schedule on which it says them. And I left that job to write a book about the history of the dollar, which is slowly grinding me into a fine paste. And the work I did about the history of the dollar turned me into a historian, so I am now getting a PhD in the history of money. The joke here is... I am an ancient and dear friend of the fearful Jesuit, which should make you suspicious that he's just talking to his buddy. But it actually turns out that if you were going to find a person who was going to think critically about the Federal Reserve and the history of why it matters to America and the world and the significance of what money is and why it matters to every single one of us, if you went in search of that person, you would likely find me or about two other people. Stipulated. He's an expert in something important but boring. Where is this going? Around the beginning of 2022, he called me with what I can only describe as a crisis of conscience. I called fearful because I was distressed. I'm not a Fed reporter anymore, so none of this is my reporting. People who work at the Federal Reserve, in particular the principals, the governors in Washington and the presidents of the various Fed banks around the country, they always have to file financial disclosure forms. And what would we find on these financial disclosure forms? Just sort of what stocks you own, whether you own individual stocks, whether you own funds, how often you trade, when you trade, do you make major trades, are you making individual stock trades, or are you just rebalancing? You know, this is, I think, pretty standard practice for appointed federal employees. I'm not sure exactly what the practice is. I'm not even sure, to be honest, whether the Fed is legally obliged to do it. But it is a longstanding practice because if you make decisions about interest rates, which is what the Fed does, then obviously that can affect the value of stocks that you hold or bond portfolios that you hold. And so we should know whether you're making trades based on these decisions. The Wall Street Journal reported uh, that the president of the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank held relatively large amounts of individual stocks and was making trades on them. And, you know, he was eventually forced to resign. Wow, that sounds like a huge deal. One of the guys who runs a regional federal bank with insider information about what the Fed might do in the future, was trading stocks in his own account? That's got to be illegal. Was he brought up on charges? It did become kind of a scandal, at least, as Breen noted, the Fed president in question resigned shortly thereafter, but... He didn't do anything illegal. He didn't do anything that, at the time, was even sort of against the practice of the Fed. And this is what I think is so interesting about this. So it turns out this was also true of the president of the Boston Fed had been making individual trades. Eventually, some, let's call them inappropriate trades, showed up in the financial disclosure forms of a Fed governor as well. This is sort of one of the people who sits on the board of governors of the Federal Reserve in D.C. Very powerful position. Let me make clear again. None of this was illegal. 
None of this was even, again, by the standards of the Federal Reserve's own bylaws, inappropriate. It just all looked kind of bad. Wait, so this wasn't against the rules, even though these are the folks who set the interest rate? Correct. And all of them had properly disclosed these transactions. Nothing illegal. It just, as noted, looked kind of bad. But just to confirm we're tracking here, those who are directly able to influence the policy of the Fed are not restricted from making trades in their own portfolios of holdings in companies that will be directly impacted by that same policy, and they can do it before the policy is announced. Now, this is only half the story. The other half is how the Fed treats anyone from outside the organization to whom it provides special access to sensitive information. And again, sensitive information when it comes to the Fed basically boils down to what, if any, action it's going to take on interest rates. Right. And for those of you who don't follow the business news, the Fed has a meeting at which it decides what, if any, changes it's going to make to what's known as the federal funds rate, the rate at which it lends money to a number of big banks. This rate, in turn, has impacts that ripple throughout the economy. We're going to explain more about how that works later. Do you have to? Yeah, we do. But we're going to try to make it fun. Ooh, good luck. Thanks. For right now, just know that there's a particular day when the Federal Reserve announces the new rate. And the thing is, until the moment that this information is made public, it is ultra, super special, double top secret. But of course, the big news organizations, especially those focused on business, want to be able to print an analysis of whatever action the Fed has or hasn't taken as quickly as possible after the news breaks. This is where reporters, including at one time Mr. Greeley himself, come in. Having been a Fed reporter myself for many years, I am familiar with what it takes to be there for a decision as a reporter. So the Fed, when it releases its decisions, the second the decision is made public, there are massive moves in financial markets adjusting to the new reality that the Fed has created. To allow reporters to process what's happening before the actual decision is made public, they let us go into what's called a lockup. This gives you a chance to think about what the Fed is going to do, think about how it might be significant for financial markets, think about whether it's a real departure from what they've been doing before or not, and compose 500 words of what you think is happening that can be released by your own news organization at the same second the decision is made public. Of course, at this point in our original phone call on the topic, he had to explain to me what exactly this lockup entails. In essence, it's a much more thorough version of the familiar TSA screening process at the airport. Please remove all metal objects from your pockets and place them in a bin. All electronics larger than a cell phone must be removed from your bags and placed in their own bin. Put your infant children in a separate bin. Place your youthful hopes and dreams in another bin and then glare at them, ruefully. Place an empty bin on your head, then hop on one foot and recite your grandmother's secret fudge recipe. If you are planning any terrorist acts, you must provide all details on Form 27B-6 and place the completed document in the orange bin, or your massacre may not qualify for consideration during award season. Please remove your shoes, belts, artificial limbs, genital piercings, and a minimum of 38% of your personal dignity and place them all in the bins. Okay, it's not exactly like the TSA, but it's kind of close. A lockup is in a building in Washington, D.C. that isn't even the Fed's building 
While you are in the lockup, you've got no communication with the outside world at all. You have to go into a basement, surrender your cell phone, surrender all electronics. You walk in with paper and a pencil. Um, you have a computer that your news organization owns, but it's actually in the lockup itself. It stays there. You hear that last part? If you want to type up your report in lockup, your news organization has to leave a non-network capable computer inside the building permanently to maintain the security of the impending Fed news. I can't really actually even go into too much detail on what the lockup is. Just know that you show up an hour and a half ahead of time to make sure that you get through all the procedures to make sure that you aren't getting the Fed's decision an hour ahead of time and quietly passing it to somebody who can make a ton of money on it. So to review, the Fed is so concerned about this important market-moving information getting out that it physically and digitally, albeit voluntarily, imprisons reporters until the news becomes public in exchange for those reporters getting the earliest possible scoop. But there were essentially no rules in place to prevent those who literally formulate and vote on the Fed's decisions from trading equities that are impacted by those decisions whenever the fuck they want. A minute before the announcement, an hour before the announcement, a week before, while they vote, go nuts. How the fuck is this possible? And how do the people who work at the Fed not see this insane double standard? It's crazy, right? Especially when, as Breen points out, there's an obvious solution. You should probably, as a principal at the Fed, have to take whatever wealth you have and put it into a portfolio, 60-40 stocks and bonds that just tracks the progress of the market. When you leave, you cash out and then you can reinvest and do whatever you want. You just should not be able to make decisions with your money. I understand that you're probably a smart person. If you work at the Fed, you could probably make better decisions with your money than in a tracker. But if you are in public service, you shouldn't be able to trade on information that you even might sort of accidentally know. I can think of a scenario where you're not even consciously making a trade based on information you know that's not yet public. You just sort of understand things better than everybody else does because you're having all these conversations with people. It's impossible to imagine a world where you divorce what you understand about markets and the Fed and what you're learning on a daily basis internally from just conversations that you're having and any sort of investing acumen that you might have. You can't check that at the door. You should have to cash out of whatever you have before you start serving at the Fed. And by the way, the Treasury Department as well. But they don't embrace that solution. So these people don't seem to worry at all about the fact that they can do what they wish investment-wise while also wielding extraordinary power over one of the key inputs that impact those same investments. And they do this while ensuring that no one outside the organization can possibly leverage that same information for personal gain. And I started to realize why. But the point is, these people somewhere deep down really feel like they can divorce these things, right? Like... This is not a group of people who are cackling and rubbing their hands together and saying, we will make the journalists go through this, this pageantry, but we ourselves will leverage this for our own benefit. It's people who work there and say, well, you know, I would have made this trade anyway. They have clear consciences. No one ever told them not to do it. That's just the way things are done. You are a priesthood that can be trusted with the Latin version of the Bible. The reporters and the hoi polloi, you can't translate it for them because they wouldn't behave as responsibly as you would. That's exactly right. Jesus, that's sobering. But as Breen pointed out, it's actually worse than that. The people who cover the Fed, it's such a specific job that one thing that happens is we all work together at one news organization and then we move to other news organizations. 
people move on. They'll go to the New York Times. They'll go to the Wall Street Journal. I went to the Financial Times. We all know each other. There's like 10 of us. So it's kind of nice to be a person who is deemed significant enough to get this information in advance under strict embargo so that you can process it and help the world understand it. It's this performance that you go through to get in there. And the performance says, this information is important. I am reliable. You can trust me with it. And I am important enough to be the kind of person who was allowed through this elaborate security procedure to think about this information before it goes out. I had a pang of conscience. No, that's not right. I had a crisis. And the crisis was, I loved being a Fed reporter. In my weird little world, it was the NFL of what I cared about. You get to talk to important people. You get to have conversations about subjects at the limits of what you can understand yourself. And you get to turn them into words that make sense to normal people. You put on a suit and tie and you hang out with people who make decisions. And I was very proud uh, that I got to do that. And I still am. But I thought about the lockup procedure. Everything that you have to go through to make sure that you do not release any Fed information early. And then I thought about all of these people at the Federal Reserve in principal positions, either governors or presidents, who were trading on their own account. Again, I got to make this painfully clear, not illegally, but it is very difficult to be a member of the Fed and not have some sense of what's happening, not be aware of sort of which direction people are leaning. You know, one of the things you do if you're a Fed reporter is you're constantly trying to figure out what kind of conversations are being held internally and what that means for markets. Because the people who pay your salary are people who read financial news magazines. They want to know this stuff too, because they want to make trades based on them. So I thought about the inconvenience of the lockup procedure, but also the inconvenience of it is in part something that makes you feel important. You get to sit in the front row when they have their press conferences and you get to raise your hand and ask questions, it's very exciting. And I thought about how that made me feel. And then I thought about how there are people inside of that system who are trading on their own account in ways that sort of now when you actually think about it, feel kind of inappropriate. It's not just that there's a seeming double standard at play here between the lockup procedure for reporters and the fact that there are actually no rules about Fed governors trading on their own accounts. It's also that the whole experience, whether deliberately or not, has the effect of making the people who are supposed to be the representatives of the independent fifth estate, the press whistleblowers who will speak truth to the people about the power of the Fed, the experience makes them feel like they're important, part of a secret club. This seeming indignity of the lockup procedure in reality feels like the pat-down by a bouncer before you get let in past the red velvet rope at the VIP entrance. He assumes. It's not like anyone is letting him in VIP entrances. I don't care. Stupid club anyway. I don't even want to go in there. This brings us to the reason I'm discussing this conversation in the context of my QAnon concerns. The scenario my friend, the expert financial journalist in an Ivy League PhD program, the guy who has covered the Federal Reserve for years, was laying out for me, in my mind, sounded as if the whole thing, depending on how you looked at it, actually was, in a sense, kind of a conspiracy. Wait, what? You're saying you believe those crackpots who think the Fed is deliberately putting us on a course of national bankruptcy to appease the nebulously defined, but probably Jewish international bankers are right? Obviously no. That's fucking crazy. And racist. And saying it's a conspiracy is really the wrong way to look at it. Instead, the people who work at the Fed, 
And as a rule, work diligently and with a real sense of doing important work to benefit the broad American public, as Mr. Greeley would tell you. They're all really nice, thoughtful people. It's really strange if you've spent any time covering Washington. It is not a place that is full of nice, thoughtful people. Everyone at the Fed, I think they often do the wrong thing, but they're genuinely trying to do the right thing. And they're just really thoughtful when you sit them down for an hour-long conversation about financial markets. It's really easy to be charmed by them because it's so rare to find a group of people who are thoughtfully trying in good faith to do the right thing. I never got the feeling that I was being bullshit or lied to. Exactly. These nice, public-spirited people who are trying really hard to do good things for the economy are hamstrung in that effort by an inability to see how their lack of transparency and their own institutional blind spots, like that whole trading on your own accounts thing, can make them appear to be out of touch with the economic needs of people who didn't go to the schools or come from the backgrounds that would lead to jobs at the Fed, at best, or as if they're part of some high-level conspiracy to fuck over the American people at the whim of mysterious puppet masters, at worst and, like, craziest. So that conversation with Breen started ping-ponging around my head, colliding with those thoughts about QAnon spreading across the land like the nothing in the never-ending story. They look like good, strong hands, don't they? But to complete mental bingo, I still needed an N4 and a G5. I found them in an excellent book called The Storyteller's Paradox by Jonathan Gottschall. The author is an academic whose career is devoted to the study of storytelling, and while his earlier work in the optimistic book The Storytelling Animal focused on the incredible positive power that stories have to uplift and unite our species, his new tome is kind of a downer. Specifically, it's a downer because it notes that precisely the same storytelling and story-emphasizing instincts that have unified humanity throughout our history are also the same forces that can sow division, discord, and hatred. Bit of a buzzkill but a smart, well-researched buzzkill, so we read it twice. We were fascinated by the story it tells about the stories we tell ourselves. And specifically, it's about why storytelling currently seems to be making so many of us totally nuts. It was about the dark power of stories to shape our minds in ways we can't always detect. Weird mid-century panics about brainwashing, the hilariously terrifying rise of QAnon and flat-earthism, the epidemic of mass shootings, Deep dives into the artistic processes of some of the world's best and worst writers. The polarization of American society down clean narrative lines, along with reams of research on how our brains shape stories and are shaped by them. This was all in pursuit of a question. Why at this very moment do stories seem to be driving our species mad? The answer, as it turns out, per Gottschall, is that while we named ourselves Homo sapiens, literally translated as wise men, A more appropriate name would have been Homo Fictus. That is, the storytelling man. And that's because our most notable distinction from the other primates, that is, our ability to communicate complex thoughts through language, while also imagining reality from the perspective of another, is uniquely suited to the telling and believing of stories. But surely, just hearing narratives can't sway us that much, can it? Like puppies or rainbows, stories are one of the things that we all agree make life better. And this instinctive, unconditional infatuation is now being reinforced by a pan-cultural movement celebrating the transformative power of storytelling in business, education, law, medicine, self-improvement, and many other domains of human experience. But this wired-in lack of suspicion endows stories with a power that's stronger than rational argument and more irresistible than hard facts. When people are asked if stories influence how they think and act, most say, 
not so much. Ironically, our bozo confidence that storytellers don't sway us is exactly what gives them such sway. Sometimes for the better, but often for the worse. Okay, but if narrative is so powerful, surely it's true that it is largely a force for good. I mean, as Gottschall himself notes, humans have conquered the planet largely due to our ability to craft, deliver, and act upon narrative stories. Story raised us up as a species. Our narrative capacity helped a soft, weak, insignificant hominid gain dominion over the planet. But now, we're living through a big bang of storytelling, a shockingly rapid expansion of the universe of stories in every direction. We're living in the age of social media, peak TV, 24-hour news channels, and skyrocketing total media consumption. The sudden evaporation of technological barriers to entry means that any person who wants a communications empire can compete for one. We can disseminate print, visual, and oral content instantaneously through a network with global reach, something that even major media companies couldn't match a couple of decades ago. And in this era of massive technological and cultural upheaval, story threatens to derange our minds, maroon us inside different realities, and tear our societies apart. So, sounds like our storytelling and believing ability cuts both ways. Indeed. Humans are the animal that uses story like a tool. Stories function as mental tools that we use not to modify the world around us so much as the people around us. A storyteller asks, how can I sway people? How can I get their money? How can I gobsmack them with the beauty of life? How can I convert them to my worldview? And story, fiction, narrative nonfiction, and everything in between is the natural lever used to move an audience into harmony with these goals. Like all tools, stories have proximate and ultimate purposes. They do X for Y. A hammer is proximately for driving nails, but ultimately for making something, say a table. At a proximate level, stories also fill a variety of roles, including entertaining, teaching, and producing meaning. But these functions are part of the larger sway-making function of storytelling, not distinct from it. Stories are influence machines, with predictable elements designed to seize attention and generate emotion toward the ultimate end of gaining different types of influence over others. As Gottschall notes, the biggest problem is that our evolution didn't prepare us for an environment where everything around us, from our social media newsfeed to detergent advertisements, are trying to tell us stories that leverage thousands of years of human understanding of psychology to make us act in specific ways. Whether that action is buying gain to get out tough, ground-in stains, or assaulting the Capitol building based on an imaginary belief that a national election was corrupted by mysterious, untraceable forces. Two media researchers from Stanford University, Clifford Nass and Byron Reeves, call this deep confusion of media with reality the media equation. And it's easy to grasp, even if you stink at math. Here it is. Media equals real life. Nass and Reeves note that the human brain didn't evolve to cope with an environment saturated with realistic simulations of people and things. Our brains completed most of their evolution back in the Stone Age, when there was no photography, film, or Dolby surround sound. So when we see convincing images of humans or convincing simulations of human life in stories, our brains reflexively process them just like the real thing. But there's more to it than that. Because according to Nass and Reeves' data, people are nearly as bamboozled by purely text-based and oral forms of storytelling. Humans have been storytelling animals at least since behaviorally modern humans emerged around 50,000 years ago. Our tendency to get swept up in stories as if they were real cannot therefore be wholly ascribed to a mismatch between Stone Age minds and modern entertainment technology. Jesus, that thesis sounds bleak. Indeed it does. And again, it's the kind of medicine your host is not particularly suited to swallow with a smile. I'm an incorrigible optimist. Evolved monkeys got to the moon a few tens of thousands of years after we started making stone tools, my brain tells me. We're probably going to figure out a solution to our current problems. 
But the thing is, rather than fading away, it seems in many ways that QAnon is eating other conspiracy theories and swelling its ranks with credulous believers from all corners. From COVID vaccine hesitation to the 2020 supposedly stolen election, from the Epstein story to the invasion of the Ukraine, from school board meetings to the halls of fucking Congress, QAnon is becoming the one ring to rule them all. In the darkness, but don't listen to me, a dedicated QAnon skeptic. Just ask QAnon prophet Dave Hayes. In fact, I think Q is going to prove to be the end of all conspiracies. Conspiracies exist because people don't accept the official sanctioned narrative on historical events, whether it's JFK assassination, 9-11, you know, Sandy Hook, whatever. People just are, are reluctant to accept official explanations. So they develop an alternate theory. Q is going to expose the truth on most of those historical events. Uh, right. The sinking of the Titanic, mm -hmm. what the Federal Reserve is all about. Q has occasionally talked about aliens and UFOs. At some point down the road, Q is going to have shined a light on a lot of subjects of interest to a lot of people and will have probably put to rest the debates on a lot of those subjects. So rather than being just another conspiracy, I think Q is going to answer for, for once and for all a lot of alternate theories on different historical events. Thing is, where he sees QAnon as a miraculous key that will unlock all previous conspiracy theories, I, as a non-lunatic, see it instead as a monstrous, unquenchable conspiracy thirst trap. Wait, do you know what that term means? I think so. Give me a little slack here. Like a thirst trap, QAnon sits there poolside in its skimpy bikini, waiting for any unsuspecting schlubby rube to express belief in some other conspiracy theory. Then it lures the unsuspecting prey ever closer with exposed cleavage and a sincere agreement that the world is indeed secretly run by a powerful clique of evil manipulators. And by the time our rube realizes what has happened, he's suddenly simping for... You're definitely too old to say simping. Okay, subscribing to the OnlyFans account... Metaphorically of an alternate reality where the anti-Trump pedophiles are running everything from behind the scenes and through QAnon, everything from 9-11 to UFOs is going to be brought into the searing daylight and all secrets and conspirators will be exposed and purged. That brings us to the final piece of the puzzle that locked into place as we contemplated this series. Everything QAnon says about everything is, obviously, demonstrably wrong. But on the other hand, while conspiracy theorists' ideas about, for example, the Federal Reserve are off-base, that doesn't mean there isn't a big problem with that institution sitting right out there in the open. As Gottschall would tell you, the narratives we tell can aid understanding, but can also obscure it. And by creating crazy-pants Looney Tunes stories that are dismissible out of hand, the conspiracy theorists, and especially QAnon, may be making it harder for non-crazies to see and address actual glaring problems. Because if everyone concerned about the Federal Reserve is harping on fictitious issues, it makes the real issues almost impossible to address. What we're saying is that this year, instead of just ridiculing the conspiracy theories, we're going to find out the real issues that those conspiracies may be obscuring. QAnon is nuts, but you don't have to be crazy to notice that many of our policies, institutions, and the other pillars of modern society may not be working for the benefit of the general public as well as we would like them to. So we're going to cut through the bullshit and also try to explain how a more sensible critique of our topics might work. Okay, groundwork laid. And so let's tie this introduction up in a bow by getting back to my original This American Lifestyle kombucha story. Fuck off. 
There is no way you're going to salvage that bullshit. Ye unicorns of little faith. So you finally get to your kombucha place, and to your utter shock and horror, it's closed. Like, not for the day. Permanently. Windows boarded up, four rent signs posted, cobwebs growing in the eaves. And you understand immediately exactly what has transpired. Your favorite kombucha place has been displaced and dispossessed by the evil forces of capitalism. Maybe the pharmaceutical companies finally saw the writing on the wall and used their influence to shut down a vendor whose life-supporting elixirs impinged on their monopoly over what we in the developed world laughably call healthcare. Or maybe the local breweries were threatened by a gluten-free and more eco-friendly alternative to their fizzy, hoppy poisons and moved in to destroy it. Or maybe, maybe kombucha tastes like you strained rotting Kool-Aid through a gym sock and therefore nobody wanted to buy it no matter how impressive the man bun behind the counter might have been. Yeah, upon reflection, it's probably that last thing. But QAnon, more rancid and repulsive than any kombucha, continues to spread and absorb every conspiracy theory in its wake. Which is why we're launching our new series, QAnon, How We Got Here. Over the next God knows how many episodes, we'll trace all of the conspiracy threads that led to QAnon, as well as the new nonsense that's sprouting in Q's unfortunately fertile manure. And so... We welcome you back to the Paranoid Strain. Yeah.